0: I want to preach um, a one-off message today. I'd like to take you into 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2. If you have one of the Brown Bibles, it's on page 1734. My intention is just to um, open up a few of the, uh, the images that Paul gives us in those early verses of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, he speaks about the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. And uh, I want us to think about the motivations of the Christian life and uh, particularly how we uh, grow in passionate desire and motivation to live wholeheartedly for the living God. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we, uh, we thank you, Lord, that yours, your love is a pursuing love. And uh, as we were singing, Lord Jesus, you, you spoke of that desire, that focus to risk all, as it were, in pursuit of the one, Uh, Leaving behind the 99, going after the 1, that was your model of shepherding. And it's also, Lord, the way you have worked in our own lives. Those of us who know you have experienced this pursuing love. Because sometimes, Lord, we've chafed and tried to walk away from your will. We've tried to disobey you. We have disobeyed you. Uh, We've forgotten your goodness. And yet we've felt your embrace again. And Jesus, we thank you that such love not only catches us, but also keeps us. And Lord, that you stir hearts to return love toward you as you breathe spirit upon us. And Lord, as we come again this morning, we want to make it our life pursuit to be those people who love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So stir up new love in us, we pray. Rekindle dying flames and bring about, Lord, a renewed spiritual vitality. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let, me pray, uh, let me read from 2 Timothy 2, just those first seven verses. This is Paul, Paul's letter to his protege, Timothy. It's, I think it's... Um, I always find it one of the most moving parts of the Bible to read because of the poignancy of a letter written in the final moments, really, of his life on earth. It wasn't long until Paul himself would be executed for uh, his testimony about Jesus. So um, whenever you read this, there's a certain weightiness because as far as we know, it's the last letter he wrote and it's the last one that we have on record. There's a weightiness because of the affection that he had for Timothy as a minister that he trained in the gospel. And uh, therefore, you think, these are important words, aren't they? Everything he says is just dripping with passion and urgency. And it's with that in mind that I think we need to understand what he's saying to him at this point. He says, "'You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also.'" It's so arguably what he's saying. He's just recapitulating uh, the Great Commission, what Christians live with as their calling, which is to take the gospel and transmit it to others who will then transmit it to others, and so the family of God will grow, with a particular focus here on the work of a minister in training up other ministers. He says, verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So there's our first picture, be like a soldier. Here's our second, he says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And here's our third, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So basically we want to obey that last verse today. We're going to think about what he's saying. And I particularly want to take a certain angle on this. And I want to talk to you about the motivations of the Christian life. We know that passion is a very important thing in life in general, in any part of life really. Um, None of you would go to an interview for a job and if they ask you your your strengths and weaknesses, do you list among your characteristics that basically you just don't care? Um, You don't do that. Everyone writes on their job description I'm passionate, even if they're not. But they write it because it's like it's a, one of those buzzwords, isn't it? "I'm passionate person," because everyone loves passion. Passion's infectious. Passion's very important. I've, I've, um, I've. Uh, I was going to say had the privilege. Um, sometimes it depends on the couple, really. But I've conducted a lot of weddings over my time. <laughs> and um, in in the experience of conducting weddings, one of the things I have never seen is a bride walking down the aisle yawning, or uh, you know, it's like oh, yeah, just like, got to get this over with. You know, wow, seriously, do we have to do this? Always, there's that eagerness and that excitement um, that characterizes a wedding day, and which is suitable for the moment, isn't it? Because you think, well, if there's no passion today, then what hope have they in 10 years or 15 years' time? You think there's got to be passion that, that ignites um, love and ignites romance and ignites relationships. And it's true, I could talk, you could talk about any part of life. The things that make you interesting are your passions, generally speaking, aren't they? Um, the things that make you someone who others want to be around is, is your passions. That's what's infectious about you. That's what's interesting about you. That's what's um, contagious. Unless you like, have really odd and unusual, bizarre passions that no one else finds interesting, which some of us do. But anyway, that's, that's in general. So I want to talk about faith, though. Think about passion when it comes to matters of faith. Um, a lot of people regard passion in faith as, with some suspicion, don't they? You think, well, isn't it passionate faith that leads to conflict and leads to uh, people doing dangerous things in the name of their faith? And of course, there's some element of truth in that. But um, I, I am unashamedly uh, a proponent of uh, zealous Christianity, because I think that's what the Bible teaches. I was, I, one of the, my favorite um, quotes that I, I came across was a YouTube video, which a guy um, called Penn Gillette, who is one of the double act of Penn, no, Penn and Teller, that's the name of the two, who are kind of these American atheist uh, magicians. And uh, Penn was talking about an experience he'd had when he left the gig one day. And uh, he walked out through the, the, uh, the exit, and as he was leaving this gig, um, a Christian, I think it was in Australia, but a Christian handed him uh, a Bible, a copy of the Bible. like Some Christians, you know, like the Gideon New Testament type thing. And uh, and he's sort of, you know, taken back a bit at first because everyone knows he's a famous atheist, you know, he's certainly at the time well known for that. Um, and he later went and recorded a little video blog and was just just uh, reflecting on that experience. And uh, he, he said these words, which have been um, spread wide and far. He said, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't, proselytize, which means to, to share your faith with others in the hope that they will be persuaded. He says, I don't respect that at all. So he says, people who don't do it, he says, I've got no respect for you. And he's an atheist speaking. He says, if you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not, or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, which is generally the main reason why we wouldn't, right? He says, how much do you have to hate somebody to not to not share your faith. And I've always found that very provocative because I always think about, well, if I'm not willing to share, it's because I lack uh, the passion and the conviction uh, to, for the other person and for God to overcome whatever social awkwardness would, would result. So when you're reading the Bible, what you discover is that on the one hand, God is very much uh, against all forms of cold-heartedness. It's one of the things that God often chastises, isn't it? Apathy, lukewarmness, double mindedness, where your, your brain is split between uh, two commitments and they're constantly competing. You want God, but then you also want the world and you want what it offers. And uh, that kind of how that brings a coolness of passion, distraction, all these things are, generally speaking, criticized in the Bible as being not good qualities that mark you. And I really want you to think about yourself for a moment. Are you a passionate believer in Jesus? If you're a Christian, I'm not assuming you all are. If you're not a Christian, what I'm describing to you today in terms of passion to live for God will either be attractive to you or, or otherwise. You've got to make your own mind up about that. But for those of us who call ourselves Christian, what kind of Christian are you? Would you, would you look at yourself and say, I am somebody who is brimming with red-hot, zealous passion for the Lord. Those of us who've been doing community Bible reading, been tracking through Psalm 119, and all the way through Psalm 119, the psalmist keeps saying how much he is energized by and delights in and loves the law of God. He loves the Word of God. There's a self-consciousness in his uh, own passion for Jesus and passion for the the Word of God, in a sense. and, And I think you should be aware of it if it's in your life. If it's not, you should also be aware of it. The flip side to it, of course, is that all through the Bible, one of the things that God honors is zeal. Love. It's why it's the highest command to love God and then to love your neighbor. And we're not talking about a disinterested, stoic, grim kind of love. Is there such a thing? We're talking about something that stirs you in the deepest parts. Passions that energize you, drive you allow you to make sacrifices, allow you to um, speak and and to work and to sweat and to labor for the sake of the thing you love. And that's the picture of the Christian life, which Jesus not only modeled, but also taught and empowers in us by the Holy Spirit that he breathed on us. You notice in the book of Acts, when the Spirit is breathed on God's people, do they become more apathetic? They become more relaxed and sort of chilled and just going with the flow. On the contrary, they become like lions. They stand up and there's this roaring passion for the Lord Jesus. Those timid disciples closed off in a room, wishing that they were in somewhere else because they're afraid of the authorities. The minute spirit rushes into their lives, stand up, preach the gospel. Get told to stop preaching, but don't stop preaching. They keep preaching. There is zealous passion, because that is what God wants in your life. That is what he breathes spirit into you for the, to inculcate, to stir up. Do you agree with me to this point? So the question then that we need to wrestle with is, well, how do you get passion? How do you get motivated? How do you get zealous? And there are many, many, many answers to that question. And I, I don't pretend to be doing anything particularly um, exhaustive today, But I wanted to focus on what Paul is stirring in our hearts through these three pictures and focus on the the motivations of these. Because I think one of the things that people would argue is the the chief motivator of the Christian life. The thing which drives us is this quality of gratitude. They say, listen, as a Christian, you recognize that you could not have earned your way to salvation. Jesus did it for you. He, He died for you on the cross, and now he's purchased you and brought you into his family. And now the entirety of the Christian life is an overflow or an outflow of gratitude to God. You're familiar with that way of thinking, aren't you, right? Of course, I I think there's some truth to that. Um, Being thankful is utterly crucial in the Christian life. But nowhere in the New Testament do you particularly find that that's being taught, that gratitude is the main way, which is constantly a life of thank you, thank you, thank you, that motivates everything you do. And uh, one of the warnings that... that, um, One preacher, John Piper, gives about this. He says the problem with it is it stirs up what you can call a debtor's ethic. A debtor's ethic, which is something like this. He describes it like this. He says a debtor's ethic has a deadly appeal to immature Christians. It comes packaged as a gratitude ethic. It says things like, God has done so much for you, now what will you do for him? He gave you his life. Now how much will you give to him? And the problem with it is, implicitly, is that the logic is that in some way you're repaying God for what he gave to us in Jesus. And uh, the New Testament never, ever gives you any indication that there's even the, the slightest possibility of any kind of repayment. It is all grace. Christ given to us freely. So then the question is, well, if it's not gratitude that chiefly motivates us, what is it? How does does the Bible stir up desire and passion to live for God more wholeheartedly? And I want to give you a few answers to that that I think come out of this. But please bear in mind that the man who wrote the letter was himself a phenomenal model of the kind of passion which I'm speaking about. He was zealous. This is a man who, in most of his writings, talks about the kinds of things he's suffering for the gospel. And usually the things that you're willing to suffer for indicate the things that you most care about, I think. If you're not willing to go through some suffering for something, then really you don't care that much. He's constantly willing to suffer for the gospel. He's constantly willing to suffer for Christ. Here's what um, John Stott says about Paul. He says, the blessing of God rested upon the ministry of the Apostle Paul in quite exceptional measure. No doubt many explanations of this could be given, but I find myself wondering if we attribute it sufficiently to the zeal and zest, the almost obsessional devotion with which he gave himself to the work. He gave and did not count the cost. He fought and did not heed the wounds. He toiled and did not seek for rest. He labored and asked for no reward except the joy of doing his Lord's will. And God prospered his efforts. Being around people like that is a contagious thing. This is Paul's letter where he's trying to transmit that, that way of thinking and living to Timothy. And we're all sat here overhearing his wisdom. Maybe God will stir something fresh in you today to live a renewed, passionate life for the Lord. Let me show you a few things that I think come out of these pictures that he gives us. I want to tell you the first motive is this. That you should make it your aim in life to please God. You should make it your aim to please him. That he would be happy with you, if I can put it like that. It comes through in what he says about the soldier he says, "Sharing suffering is a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him now immediately, and some of you, your minds are flagging some warning lights at this point because immediately we realize that we're walking into slightly dangerous territory, and here are the two opposite dangers that you can. You can perceive on this issue. On the one hand, there are those of you who imagine God. This is already your problem. You imagine him as impossibly difficult to please. And as a result, you live under the constant sense that your life is worthless. That you can do nothing for him. That everything you do do is is not acceptable. You live under a, a, a shadow or a cloud, as it were. And that kind of way of thinking and feeling is incredibly destructive to the Christian life, isn't it? It leads to, for some people, it leads to kind of, um, because of the constant sense of as though God's not pleased with them, it leads to a, a massive demotivation and joyless life. A kind of, that's the very thing that flattens and squashes you because you imagine God to be displeased with you. And I'm talking particularly about those of you who Maybe have nothing particular on your conscience. It's just kind of false guilt poured on you all the time. For others of you, that kind of way of thinking leads to a, a kind of neuroticism, if you can put it like that. Spiritual neuroticism. Perfectionism. You know how some people, if they, they've lived under that shadow of parents for whom nothing was ever good enough, and it turns them into kind of neurotic people who are constantly trying to live a perfect life and have tick every box and do everything exactly right in a way that is unhealthy emotionally leads to stress and strain okay so there's some of you who who already feel like god's impossible to please and so these kinds of things are the result in your life joylessness spiritual neuroticism and and that's that's not a good thing on the other hand of course there are those of us who because we love the gospel we believe that the gospel, of the, the message of God saving us is one of his free grace towards us, his pleasure over us because we're in Christ Jesus. So God hid you in Christ Jesus and when you died with him on the cross and were raised with him. And that's the message of the gospel, isn't it? So Christ did it all for you. He lived the life you couldn't live. He died the death you needed to die. And he was raised to give life to you. And part of the problem that can come as a result of believing all those truths is that you begin to imagine that your life no longer matters. That God is, in a sense, benignly pleased with you, like a kind of aging, senile grandfather who just sort of s- smiles over you, um, regardless of what you do, because it doesn't matter. You're just covered with, by the blood of Jesus. And... Again, the problem with that is it's massively demotivating, isn't it? If nothing you do makes any difference. And we we say things, I think there's truth in this, but we need to understand it correctly. When we say God can't love you more or couldn't love you less, that there's no such thing as a good day or a bad day in in, in God's sight. It's all covered by grace. And I preach this stuff and I believe it in, in, in certain ways. I do believe that this is the gospel, right? But what you find when you read the New Testament is that there's something much richer about the Christian's life and what motivates them. It deals with both of these wrong ways of thinking. It tells us on the one hand that we are justified, adopted into God's family, and loved. So he is not angry with you. Those of you who've lived with that sense, that heaviness, like God is displeased with you. Of course, if there's sin in your life you need to repent of, then repent of it. But the minute you do, you're in God's favor. And you must always know that, remember that, preach that to yourself if your prevailing sin is one of heaviness of spirit that steals joy and it's really rooted in unbelief, not believing the gospel. The New Testament deals with that. But it also tells us that when we come into the family of God, we're in a new relationship with the Father, which allows us to live lives which are pleasing to Him that he takes pleasure in the things that you do. Let me read to you what um, a theologian called Wayne Grudem said about this. He said, uh, Sometimes Christians assume that they can do absolutely nothing in in their life that will please God. They think that God counts even their faithful obedience as totally worthless, totally unworthy of his approval. He says, I suspect that just as Satan accuses Christians and wants them to feel false guilt and false accusation, so he also seeks to keep them from great joy of knowing the favor of God on their daily activities, of knowing that God is pleased with their obedience. In this way, he seeks to hinder our personal relationship with God for the ability to take pleasure in another person is an essential component of any genuine personal relationship. In other words, what the New Testament teaches and what he's trying to explain to us there is that if you do not imagine that God can and does take pleasure in your obedience, then you don't understand that this relationship with God is real. That your life matters to him. That the way you live matters to him. Now, I just want to show you then the New Testament teaches that your daily life has the potential to bring pleasure to your Father in heaven. Isn't that an incredible thought? Just think about this in this very moment in which you're sat here. The way in which you listen and receive the Word of God has the potential to bring pleasure to the Father who spoke it in the first place. You can listen in a way that brings him displeasure or pleasure. You ever thought about that as a sermon listener? You should. It would help me a great deal. <laughs> the way, you know, it amuses me how Luke said during the, um, the little break, you know, the bit between the, the singing and the preaching, where he said, Turn and relax and turn and say hi to one, one another. Most of you do not relax at that moment, do you? You kind of go, <gasps> Do I have to turn and say <laughs> hi to someone? And you think, No, do you understand that there is a way in which you can conduct yourself that brings pleasure to the Father in every moment of your day, including how you love and welcome one another at church? I'm just choosing examples in this very moment. But of course we could apply this out to every aspect of your life, every moment of your life. Niklasia is still a little bit skeptical. I just want to show you a couple of verses. We could have chosen many. I want to show you a couple of verses which just fill this out, bear this out as being true. Here's one of them. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is weighing up the merits and demerits of being single. He was a single man. And he, he's weighing them up. And he's really commending the single life. It's one of the unique things about the Christian faith is as much as we love and champion marriage its importance, we also believe that singleness can be of profound value. And then you might think, well, why? How? How could it possibly be a good thing for me to be single for the rest of my life? Well, here's your answer. 1 Corinthians 7.32 I want you to be free from anxieties, he says. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. He isn't distracted. Having a family is very distracting. Every Sunday morning when I'm getting ready for church, I have the constant barrage of interruptions from my children, knocking on my door, and then I have to drag C out of bed. C! Take care of these children, please, for for the sake of me and this church, please. Um, My mind is split. I want to please the Lord, but I also, you know, I I know I need to please my family. I need to have attention to those things. But, But you see, the logic of what Paul's saying is that as a single person, you can please God, and you can have great concern for the question of how to please God knowing that it's possible for you to live in a way that's displeasing and, and a way that is pleasing. And that it takes great effort and thought and attentiveness to God's word and his spirit to consider how to live a life that pleases him. And as a single person, you have more time to think about that. That's what he's saying. It's a good thing, since pleasing God is pretty much the best thing you can do with your life, right? Right? Here's another example. Ephesians 5. Walk as children of light for the fruit of light is found in all that's good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Exercise every faculty of your being to figure out by the grace of God how to live a life that brings the Father pleasure. That's what Paul's saying. So you mustn't think on the one hand that there's nothing you can do to please God because he's so heavy and angry. That's totally wrong. On the other hand, you can't think that it doesn't really matter how I live because I'm just covered by the blood of Jesus and therefore God's just pleased with me all the time. There's a sense in which that's true, but there's also a sense in which that's very not true. God wants you to be responsive to him. And If you're reading the New Testament and you're, you're asking yourself, well, what is it that brings him pleasure? What brings the Father pleasure in us? There's all kinds of things the New Testament tells us. It tells us that presenting your bodies as living sacrifices every day, saying, God, my energy, all that I am is for you, that's pleasing to him, it says. It tells us that preaching the gospel is, is pleasing to God. It tells us that keeping God's commands are pleasing. In fact, there are so many things that are told us that are pleasing that the best I can do is just say, obedience is pleasing. That's what God loves. He loves children who want to obey him. We won't obey him perfectly. There's ignorance in us, isn't there? There's all kinds of cloudy thinking. There's competing emotions, all kinds of stuff. Grant all of that. But you want to obey him. That's what's pleasing. And that's what Paul's commending in Timothy. He said, the soldier is concerned. He doesn't get entangled in civilian pursuits. What he's saying there is that the thing that pleases God is is concentration of purpose. Single-mindedness in the way you approach obedience. Is there something in your life that's distracting you? That's actually dulling your edge or stealing the joy that you have in Christ? Cut it off. Deal with it. Because the Lord is pleased when you have a single-minded devotion to him. It's one of the things that Jesus preached about. He talked about the problem of really being like a chameleon where your eyes are moving in different directions, I suppose. <laughs> you know, one is on this and another eye's on that. And you're distracted the whole time because we don't have chameleon brains that can process more than one thing at a time. You need to have focus. He talked about clarity of vision, Jesus did. He, he, he called it the single eye. It doesn't mean like cyclops. He meant that you're focused on one thing. And Paul's saying that brings the Father pleasure. Your only concern is How can I please you today, O Lord? I want you to see, though, just before we move on, that this this is in no way incompatible with believing the gospel of grace, of God's mercy that covers us. Because think about this in, in a few ways. First of all, the only reason you can please God is because you're acceptable to him through Christ. Without Christ, without the blood that washes us clean, the Bible says you're an enemy of God. And you cannot do anything to please the Father. But when Christ redeems you, justifies you, cleans you up, brings you into the family, that's the very reason you can live a life that brings the Father pleasure. (laughs) I think the New Testament teaches also that there's an expectation that if you're a Christian, your life is going to be pleasing to God. It's not like it's only something reserved for the very elite spiritual people. Just a few of us manage to attain a life that is pleasing to God, and the rest of us just have to kind of mope in the ditches. The New Testament seems to indicate to me that the assumption is that most of us are going to live lives that bring God pleasure. It's kind of the default in a sense. Because you want to obey him, right? You may be torn, but basically you want to. Now do so with more energy. Well, think of it this way: you know, as a dad, you discover that as much as your children get on your nerves from time to time, basically there is a a, a posture towards them of wanting to be pleased with them in everything. You know, even your, even when your children fart, there's a certain amount of pleasure you get in watching your children. <laughs> I'm, not, I know, I'm being crude deliberately because I want you to understand that even everything about your kid, their quirks, their personality, everything brings you a certain amount of pleasure. And I think that that's what the New Testament teaches is God's disposition towards us. He is a father. And even your weakest efforts to please him, bring him pleasure. That's my first motive. You should aim to please God. Here's a second. I think you should foster a competitive spirit. Now, all three of these things, by the way, are somewhat controversial, and I'm trying to make a case for, for them. What does he say? He says, no soldier gets entangled. No, the next verse. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Or more literally, a wrestler is not crowned with the laurel wreath unless he wrestles according to the rules. There's no doubt that um, a competitiveness of spirit is often an ugly thing in our lives, isn't it, right? I remember games of... Have you ever played Risk? Risk is the most emotional board game you can play because it takes like three or four hours, and by the end of it, you, it's amazing because like one army will take over like 99% of the globe. And then on the next go, the other army takes over 98%, and it goes back and forth like that until eventually you just crush your opponent. And um, it it starts off fairly friendly and fun. You just throw the dice, and you're like, I'm going to take that country, I'm going to take that country. By the end, you're like, I am launching my nuclear missiles, I'm going to crush you. And of course, what this does when you're playing with your brothers is it inculcates a certain amount of competitiveness of spirit, especially if one of them really believes, as my younger brother does, in, in absolute fairness in everything and has been known to throw the board in the air. All the pieces go everywhere. That kind of competitiveness is ugly. I'm not a football player. I'm sure you can tell. Um, but I, I, uh, I've heard that Christians playing football are the very worst. Because I think, I think it's because in life they feel like they have to be nice people all the time. I don't know where they get that idea from, but you feel like you have to be nice all the time. So as soon as they get on the football pitch, all the rage comes out. And the, you know, the aggressive tackles, the, the injuries that follow as a result. I've, I've heard this is true. I've got it on good authority from friends who are interested in football. I, I prefer more manly pursuits like reading. And, um, <laughs> but anyway... Um, Competitiveness can be ugly, mainly because you think of what makes that competitiveness ugly at times. It's basically because it's such a passionate concern with how you appear, right? Uh, In your own glory, I suppose, and um, and that that can be a very dangerous thing. But I don't think Paul is talking here about a competitiveness with others. It's not like when he's talking about this wrestling thing. It's not like we're going to set up cage fighting as a new way of doing the Christian faith, and we all wrestle each other with mixed martial arts. As much as Chris Cho might enjoy that and smash us all to pieces. But I think what he's really talking about is, is, is I think what he's talking about is the idea seems to be competing against your, your sin yourself and particularly your sin nature, a desire to crush it in one sense. And I get that because from a couple of other references in the New Testament, there's one in uh, 1 Corinthians 9 where uh, Paul's describing, again, his own, Passion and spiritual life. And he says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. And there's, I want you to notice that expression, self-control. The real fight is with yourself, isn't it? He says, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable, so I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. I think what he's describing is this, that if you think about this in life, um, leadership in all forms is, is, is very challenging, but the hardest person to lead is yourself, isn't it? You're the person who gives you the most grief, right, in daily life. Sometimes you take it out on others and blame others. But basically, you're the person who gives you the most grief. That's certainly true in my experience. Most of my frustration in life, most of my f- battling in life, is with myself. So when he says that this, this wrestler wrestles according to the rules, I think he's describing a, a fighting spirit which is really at war to some degree with, with your own nature. Or your sin nature, perhaps. There's a couple of places in the New Testament that talk about what this wrestling looks like. And the word is used in the context of suffering. In Hebrews 9. It says in, uh, if I can find the verse, in Hebrews 9.32. Which doesn't exist. So I've got the verse wrong. Uh, Hebrews 10.32, I think it is. Recall the former days when you were, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. The hard struggle is the same word wrestling. You wrestled with sufferings. Why? Because suffering has the potential to destroy your faith in a loving God. So the fight that's going on is not really with the suffering per se, it's with your own spirit. How will I respond to the hardship that I'm facing right now? You are your, your greatest opponent, aren't you? I also think about the times in the New Testament when we're told to put to death the sin nature in you, the flesh in you. There's a war to the death going on and only one victor. Either the life that God's birthed in you or the sin nature which wants to kill you. So who's going to win? That's the fight, isn't it? Here's another place which indicates to me that this fight is mainly with yourself. Hebrews 12.1 Therefore since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses it's a picture of being in the great stadium of God's kingdom with many onlookers. He says let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. So you're not going to get on the racetrack carrying you know, a backpack and your Dr. Martin boots and all that kind of stuff. Because he says that's the analogy there of all the sins that you could carry with you through life which will hinder you and slow you down. You need to get on your, your tighties and, you know, your leotard and then you'll run fast. And you say, strip off all the sin. Get rid of the things which hinder you. Fight them. Kill them so that you can focus and win the race. So what I'm describing here for you when I say you need to foster a competitive spirit, this wrestler who wrestles according to the rules. For one thing, there's something strenuous about the Christian life. I think some people think that effort is unspiritual. Because if you're really a spiritual person, you'll kind of float through the Christian life. Just, just drift into prayerfulness, drift into godliness, and it all just happens like, like you're floating three inches above the ground, Effortlessly. And I just don't recognize that to be true, partly because I don't know any godly people who don't exert enormous amounts of effort to, to grow and to obey. It's also the New Testament, the Bible's full of people who, who sweat and, and, and bleed sometimes for the sake of obeying God. There's great strenuousness to the Christian life, Now you all know what it's like to exert strain in aspects of your life because you, there are things that you have strained towards be it passing exams getting a promotion um, getting a girlfriend uh, whatever it is but whatever you, you know what effort is but the question is why not why doesn't God worthy of our greatest efforts this is how Paul talks about the effort he put into his, his faith he says for this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. He's saying that my daily life is one of constant exertion for the sake of the kingdom. I never take my foot off the gas. I never slacken off. And I know that there's a danger of, of of being in a kind of state of striving for which you need the rest of God, you need to experience the grace of God. And I think that's why Paul's saying that he toils with all the energy that he powerfully works in me. So he's not saying this is something I just generate in myself. He's saying this is spirit-empowered, vigorous work. And that's the kind of attitude with which you should be approaching day-to-day fighting for the things of God. There's something strenuous. There's something combative about this image, isn't there? Combative, the word means an eagerness to get into the fight. You want to jump in. Because the reason why we've got to stress this is because so much of the Christian life in the Bible is described as warfare. We seem to have forgotten it when we have a kind of insipid version of Christianity. But so much of it is described as warfare. Warfare. I love what Jesus said about John the Baptist in Matthew 11. He says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. In some senses, if you want to live a life that does something for God, you have to be prepared to do violence. You know I'm not speaking (laughs) literally. (laughs) I mean this fight against the flesh and the sin and the enemy and all those kinds of things. There's something disciplined as well about this. He competes or he wrestles according to the rules. In other words, there's an integrity and a righteousness and a training that as you grow in Christ, godliness is worked in you and you grow more and more to the conformity of his image. That's what you're fighting for. You should aim to please God. You should aim to foster this kind of competitive spirit in day-to-day life. Let me add a third thing, which I think is a motive that Paul gives us here. You should seek the reward that God wants to give you. He says in the first six, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. And once more, I think that a lot of people think that rewards in the Christian life are a deficient motivation. But somehow it's, it's not godly to desire rewards. Now why do we think that? Bear with me for a moment. Why do we think that rewards are a bad motive in the Christian life? Here's one reason. Some of it's to do with Western philosophy. I think it mainly comes from a guy called Immanuel Kant, but it's also prevalent across Western thinking. That A lot of us believe that for, for an act to be virtuous... The element of reward and of you gaining anything should be stripped away from it, even the pleasure of doing the act itself. If if you do it for that reason, then suddenly all the virtues disappeared. And that's the way Westerners think about what what goodness is, what moral goodness is. Um, So, you know, if you want to serve on the welcome team and your hidden motivation is that maybe you'll just meet the special someone, (laughs) then... Suddenly, whatever righteousness was in that act is no longer there because you have twisted motives. Now, think about this for a moment. What about the cross? Can anyone say that Jesus didn't perform the greatest act of righteousness pleasing to the Father in the history of the universe when he gave himself freely on the cross? And yet, he's explicit that the reason he gave his life was for the reward of his church, his bride, who is purchasing by his own blood. Does that take away or diminish in any sense the goodness of that act? It doesn't, does it? He had a very clear purpose in mind. It wasn't pointless death. He died for his reward. Now I know maybe some of you, your mind immediately fits to something, a verse like this one. In, in Luke 6, Jesus says, that when you, when you lend it to someone, he says, uh, to those from whom you expect to receive back, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But he says, love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return. So he said, ah, there it is, there it is. The righteousness that God wants is the pouring out of good acts with no expectation of return, no reward. But funnily enough, Jesus then immediately adds, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. In other words, the Bible's logic is something like this. That when you obey God as an expression, maybe you get nothing in this life in return, but there's an expression of faith, of the future reward that he gives you. That's what's pleasing to him. Because you're trusting that he can give you better than whatever you could gain in life. And he loves that. That's motivated the greatest acts of generosity, of self-sacrifice. Because people say, listen, I might not get anything in this life for what I've done, but the Lord knows. He knows, and he will be good to me. So there's partly this Western philosophy thing, which I think is confused and not biblical. There's also partly this gospel thing. And I've set up this tension a few times already, but we want to say, look, the gospel is free. Grace is free. Paul's really explicit about this in Romans 6. um, Where he says, he puts it like this. He says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You say, well, there it is. There's nothing more to be gained. I can't attain anything in life because I've already got it all when Christ died for me on the cross. The free gift, it was given to me freely. And I want to say, amen, It's, it's precious that you were saved. That's the free gift of God. That's justification by faith. That's what it means to be a Christian. But I'm not talking to you about salvation here. Paul tells us that you can be saved, but just barely. One of the most frightening verses in the New Testament is this one in 1 Corinthians 3, where he says that on the day, the final day, everyone's work will become manifest. It'll be shown for what it is, because the day will disclose it. He says if the work that you built on the foundation survives, you'll receive a reward. But if it's burned up, you'll suffer loss you yourself will be saved, but only as through fire. So you just barely get in, he's saying. So it's not, we're not talking about what it means to be saved. That's wonderful. It's a free gift of God. But we're saying that now that you are saved, there's work to be done and there's something to be gained as a result of your work for the Lord. I think this drove Paul in all of his living days There's no doubt in my mind that this is what the New Testament teaches. Let me just read to you the ever-insightful C.S. Lewis on this subject. One of the most famous quotes, and deservedly so. He says, As if there lurks in most modern minds, the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing. You, know, right? you should not desire good things for yourself, because that's unrighteous. He says, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is in no part is no part of the Christian faith. He says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward, in other words, you know, the Bible, when it tells us that you're going to get rewards for your labors, nobody's going red when they say it because it's not embarrassing. The unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. What did Jesus teach? He said that when you're persecuted for him, you get a reward. He said that when you love others, particularly your enemies, you'll be rewarded by your Father in heaven. He said that when you obey him, you'll be rewarded. He says when you give, basically you can't outgive God because he'll give you more in return. He says when you pray, go and kneel in secret before your Father in heaven and your Father in heaven will reward you that. He said, when you fast, put on after shave, get clean, make sure you look great, don't tell everyone you're fasting, deal with the fasting breath, and then you'll be rewarded when you do this act in secret for the, for the pleasure of the Father. And that's just all in one sermon, by the way. Jesus said all of that in one sermon. So if we want to roll in all the other teaching the Bible has on this, Then we're going to be here all day. The Bible teaches... That God, the Father, wants to reward you for the things that you do for him. That's a wonderful teaching. Are we talking about here and now in this life or in eternity? Both, I suppose. I know that sometimes we don't get everything we hope for in this life. That's okay. The Lord knows it all. He logs it all. What kind of rewards are we talking about? If we're talking about heavenly stuff, well, I know that the new heavens and the new earth is going to be a little bit different from this once, and I've not been there yet, so I can't necessarily fill out the picture for you too much. But I also know this, that it seems to me that God's, God's ways don't, he's unchanging. and The things that we, we delight and are rewarded for, for in this life and the rewards we enjoy in this life, it seems to me are also going to be true in the life to come. We talk about authority and responsibility and dignity and prosperity I think the Bible teaches that all those things are ours in the new heavens and the new earth. as reward for our labors. Daniel 12 puts it like this. He says, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. He's saying there's a special dignity to certain people in eternity because of the greatness of the work they did on earth. This is extraordinary when you think about it. Why wouldn't you want to live for that? And if you think all of that just sounds a little bit too carnal and a bit too fleshly for you and you're holier than Jesus himself, listen to this. In 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul said this. He says, What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? In other words, what's our reward? He says, is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. At the very least... A Christian life should be motivated by the passion of seeing other lives impacted by the work you do for the Lord. That's your joy. That's your crown. That's your boasting. And you could go on living a kind of selfish life of seeking your own things. Or you could say, no, my, I want to live for God. And I want to spread the love of God and the gospel of God and see the reward of my work and my labors within the kingdom. And that is so rewarding. Friends, I know that we will all fall short of the things I've been describing. There's no way that I can perfectly please God. There's no way that I can wrestle with all my energy all of the time and and win every time. And there's no way that I can consistently keep my mind on the rewards that God's going to offer me. Because if I did, I think I'd be way more radical than I am now. There's obviously elements of unbelief in all of us. So I finally just want to close by pointing you to Jesus. He was the good soldier who pleased his commanding officer. Didn't he say that my, will, my desire is to do the will of him who sent me? He said, I only do what I see the Father doing. Jesus was the single-minded one who lived to please the Father. He was the wrestler who, broke, who did battle with Satan, sin, and death, and won. And he was the farmer who did the work necessary to get the harvest that he wanted, the harvest of us, of our souls. So yes, go on seeking to please God. Go on wrestling. Go on seeking the reward that he offers. But do it all in the knowledge that Christ Jesus, your forerunner, and the one who's perfecting your faith, he's stronger than you, and he's upholding you, and he's energizing you and empowering you. Thank God we're saved by his name and not ours. Amen? Amen. Why don't we stand and let's pray together. Father, we praise you that in being called into your kingdom and into your plans and your purposes, we've been called into the greatest, most dignified, most challenging goals and passions imaginable. Lord, we all fill our lives and our imagination with things that we seek for and seek to attain in life, but nothing could be as great as working for the, the wreath, the crown that you could give. We pray, Lord, that you will re-energize passionless lives today, that where apathy has crept in and there is hesitation to obey you, I pray, Lord, that you will bring about renewed desire to be very quick to obey you, to be full of passion and energy to do it. Thank you, Jesus, that you've breathed spirit on us for this end. Now empower us, we pray to live renewed lives in your name we pray amen amen